interact with me here. How would you describe this picture? Okay, 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 okay. The, wrong, the wrong size, the glasses, the wrong size. How many of you, your first thought when you saw this was, the glass is half empty? We have some honest people here. How many thought it was, how many thought it was half full? How many of you are just now thirsty? Okay, okay. You, you know, the, the truth is, uh, all of us, we lean one way or the other, do we not? That is, a, we, we all have... We all have some kind of outlook on life, don't we? What, right? Like, for some of us, we tend to think that it's half full. Other of us tend to think it's half empty. But all of us in this room, we, we lean one way or another. That, that is, whether we acknowledge it or not, all of us have our own outlook on life. And what I want you to consider this morning is that your outlook, whichever kind of bent you have, it shapes your response to everything in life, doesn't it? Now, yeah, you don't have to say it out loud, but what type of outlook should a person have, especially a Christian? And not just whether the, the glass is half full or half empty. What I mean is, what is the proper perspective for someone to interpret life? And it's, it's in a very important question because as I just mentioned, uh, your outlook on life, it really shapes Everything. Because the reality is we all are constantly interpreting the events in our life through some kind of grid. And here's the question I want us to consider this morning. What should that grid be? What should be the grid? What should be the filter that we process and we interpret all of life through? I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. That's page 979 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. Today we conclude what has been an 11-month study in the book of Ephesians. We started Ephesians at the beginning of August in 2022. And this morning, we're going to just look at the final four verses of this book, verses 21 through 24, and I'm going to suggest that in these verses, we learn a lot of things in these verses, but I'm going to suggest that one of the main things we learn in these verses is how Christians ought to view life. I believe if we, if we read these, these final verses, especially in light of all that Paul has taught previously in the book of Ephesians, we're going to learn what kind of grid we ought to have to interpret the events of life. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Ephesians chapter 6, 
verses 21 through 24. Paul writes this. He says, so that you all, excuse me, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And now here's Paul's benediction. This is his, this is his wish. This is what he desires for those who have read this letter. He writes this, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen and amen. This is God's good, good word. Have you ever used one of Gmail's suggested responses to an email you received? Do you know, do you know what I'm talking about? You know, you get an email from somebody, something like, hey, do you want to you meet at this time? And when you hit reply, it has generated like three or four different responses that you could select. Do you know what I'm talking about? Has anyone ever used this before? It's, it's pretty handy, is it not? Especially if you have a lot of emails you need to get through. Yes, that's fine. Oh, look, yes, that's fine. You can just keep clicking the same one. The, the auto response that's suggested can be helpful. Okay. Pop quiz, does anyone happen to know how many letters of Paul are in the New Testament? How many letters of Paul are in the New Testament? Go, feel free to say it out loud. 14? 13? The, the, the answer is 13. There are 13 letters of Paul in the New Testament. So you guys were close, 14, 13, yeah, 13 letters. And you know what? He begins and ends each of his letters in the same way. Do you know this? After he identifies himself, all of, 13, all of Paul's 13 letters begin with the phrase, grace to you. And then, as we just read, they all end with the phrase, grace be with you. He starts each letter, grace to you, and he concludes each letter, and grace be with you. There is not one exception. All of his letters begin this way, and they end this way. That is, Paul frames his letters in the exact same way. He's like, look, grace is coming to you, as I write this spirit-inspired letter, and then that grace you have now received, it's going to go with you. And in faith, you know why Paul frames all his letters this way? It's not because that was one of the auto-response selections on his Gmail account. No, I want to suggest it's because as Ephesians 
and the rest of his letters make clear. The Apostle Paul perceives all of life as a gift of God's grace. Grace to you. Grace be with you. The Apostle Paul perceives all of life as a gift of God's grace. And you know what, Christian? So should we. You see, as we consider Paul's benediction, especially in light of the entire content of Ephesians, it's very clear that Paul wants us to do the same. That is, Paul wants us to view all of life as a gift of God's grace. This, I want to suggest, is the note Paul ends this masterful letter on. Faith Community Church, Christian, view all of life, everything, as a gift of God's grace. From your birth, to your new birth, to all the blessings and the trials of this life, to your future glory with God in heaven. All of it, all of it is a gift of God's grace. This, I want to suggest, is the correct outlook we must have in life. We all have a disposition one way or the other. God's word calls us to have a new disposition. And that is we view all of life as a gift of God's grace. I mean, as, as Paul said elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul writes this. He's like, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And you know what the answer is? Nothing. <laughs> All of it, all of life is a gift. And let's just, let's just drill down here for a moment. Christian, consider this. Consider the fact that you did not choose to be born. Indeed, you had nothing to do with your birth, did you? Nor did you have anything to do with the fact that you were born here and now and not like, say, the 14th century in Europe during the bubonic plague. Indeed, as Paul has made clear in Ephesians 1, when it comes to your new birth, it was God who chose you, not the other way around. How did, how did Paul begin this letter? God, Christian, God chose you before the foundation of the world to be adopted as his beloved son or daughter. Furthermore, all of your talent, all of your gifting, that too is a gift from God. Do you realize this? In fact, even if you've worked really, really hard to perfect your craft, who granted you the breath, the life, and the skill to perfect said craft? Who did? God. Christian, consider how all the good things you presently enjoy come from the hand of your creator. I mean, seriously, th just think about it. What is something you're really enjoying right now in this season of your life? What is it? Does that not come from the hand of your good and kind God? Indeed, even the hardships of life come from the pruning hand of God. 
So what I'm, I'm trying to get us all to see is that all of life is a gift of God's grace. We are owed nothing. Yet Paul says, grace to you and grace be with you. And you know what this reality, if this, this truth that all of life is a gift of God's grace, you know what this should produce in the life of the Christian? I'll give you a hint. It's the very first quality Paul calls us to exemplify in the book of Ephesians. The very first thing Paul ever calls us to do, the very first quality he calls us to exemplify, and it's found in chapter 4, verse 1. And you remember what that is? Somebody take a guess. That's good. Humility. Humility. This reality ought to produce humility in the heart of the Christian. You see, pride is the great enemy in the Christian life. Because you know what pride says? Pride says the exact opposite. Pride says, I did it, and I deserve it. How am I actually do this? I can see now. Pride says, I did it, and I deserve it. Pride says, I deserve a good marriage. Pride says, I deserve a spouse who respects me. Pride says, I deserve to see my grandkids whenever I want to. Pride says, I deserve that promotion at work. Pride says, I deserve that leadership role at church. Pride says, I deserve that opportunity to serve in whatever ministry I want, whenever I want. This is often why, or can be why, church folk get offended. They believe they deserve something. And when they don't receive what they think they deserve, they become upset. And honestly, such a reaction reveals that they're really doing things for themselves rather than God. In fact, if you want to know if you're really doing things for God rather than yourself, ask yourself, what is my reaction when no one thanks me or recognizes what I have done? Or what is your reaction if someone comes along in a ministry and does it differently or better than you? Or better yet, how do you respond if someone gives you criticism or correction? If whatever you're doing, you're doing for yourself, if if, if you're listening to the voice of pride that says, I did it and I deserve it, you will get angry, you will get offended, and you'll probably get bitter too. Prideful people get defensive and attack those who correct them. They're, They're like the scoffer in Proverbs 9 who hurls insults at those who correct them. Whereas the wise person, the humble person, loves those who correct them. So faith, what what is your outlook on life? Do you view everything as an undeserved gift from God? Or do you listen to pride and believe, you know what, I did it, I deserve it. You know what, we deserve to keep the chairs out. We deserve to leave this out. We shouldn't have to do this every week. 
We deserve a good church building. We deserve God to answer my prayer on my timeline. God, I see this building. We deserve that. We're serving you. We're honoring you with our lives. Faith, when you consider that you are not owed anything from God except his wrath for your sin, and yet he's given you salvation in Christ Jesus and the promise of his unending love to be showered upon you for all eternity. You know what that does? It causes you to respond very differently to both the blessings and hardships of life. I mean, honestly, when you walk through life thinking, all of life is a gift, I deserve nothing. But what I received, it's a gift from him. Man, when that is your outlook, blessing comes, thank you. Hardship comes, you won't give way to bitterness or anger. It's like, this is from the hand of God. He is good. He does good. I'm going to trust him through this. It's a radically different way of looking at life. In fact, what I want to suggest is that in these several verses, as we look carefully with Tychicus and the benediction, I want to suggest that Paul gives us three ways, three, you could say, manifestations of, of how a person is to respond to the various things of life if they view all of life as a gift of God's grace. You see, in his prayer of blessing, Paul articulates the qualities he wants to see in the life of every Christian. That's what the benediction is. He, he's, he's praying this for them. He's hoping this is what happens. It's a prayer of blessing. And these are the qualities that should be present in the life of a Christian who views all of life as a gift of God's grace. So to see if these qualities listed align with our lives, I believe it's appropriate for us to ask ourselves some hard questions, questions I think these verses invite us to ask. Right? So here's the first. So, so I'm getting it from the last line of the book and the first line of the book and everything in between. <laughs> I think Paul's saying, view all of life as a gift of God's grace. Okay? What would that practically look like? Well, consider and ask yourself this. Ask yourself first, in light of God's grace, where do you seek encouragement? Look again at verses 21 and 22. Paul writes, So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Now, it is interesting, we should ask ourselves, why does Paul want the Ephesians to know about his circumstances? Well, why does he want to send Tychicus to tell them about this? I think, I, I think there's, there's three reasons. First, it's so that they can pray for him. Two, I think it's because he wants the Ephesian believers to know what he is doing, how he is living, so as to teach them by his life. But then third, and I think most importantly, the reason why he wants Tychicus to tell them how Paul is doing is because he does not want the Ephesian believers to lose heart. Because remember what he wrote in chapter 3, verse 13? 
He specifically said he did not want the Ephesian believers to lose heart over how Paul was suffering for their sake. So this is one of the reasons why Paul is sending Tychicus to them. But that's not the only reason Paul identifies. Look again what he says now there in verse 22. He gets very specific for us. He says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose. Tell us, Paul, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. I'm sending him so that your hearts would be encouraged. You know what's something all of us on this life get to experience? Discouragement. I know I have. Have you? In fact, is there something you are currently discouraged about? Perhaps the loss of an opportunity? Perhaps you have some discouragement with the ongoing struggle of a certain sin? Maybe you're experiencing some kind of discouragement in your family or with your children or in your marriage? Maybe you're experiencing some discouragement at your job. All of us living in a Genesis 3 world are going to experience discouragement. Now, I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul perceives his letter. He not only sees it as being inspired by the Word, by the Spirit, so that's the actual Word of God, but I want to suggest that he sees his writing as encouragement. So Paul sends Tychicus to encourage them not with entertainment, not with food, not with empty cliches, not with false platitudes. We need to ask, what is he going to encourage them with? And I think what the text makes clear is he's going to encourage them with what's in his hand, and that's the very letter of Ephesians. And I think there's a truth here that we ought not to miss, as simple as it might be. And you know what it is, Faith? It's that true encouragement, the encouragement each of us need is found in God's Word, not the wisdom of man. As several commentators have pointed out, there's little information in the New Testament about Tychicus. He's first mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4. As this in Colossians makes clear, he was a man highly regarded by Paul. As Paul entrusted him to carry this letter to the Ephesians, as well as the letter to the Colossians, we also learn that he accompanied Onesimus back to Colossae. In fact, in the book of Colossians, Paul refers to him as a beloved brother and a faithful minister of the Lord. This guy was a proven servant of the Lord. And his task was to encourage the saints in Ephesus, not with his wisdom, but with the very word of God, freshly penned. So I think it's important for us to ask, where do you seek encouragement, faith? When life gets difficult, 
When you truly feel the spiritual battle you are in, where do you turn? Perhaps the better question is this. Do you agree with Paul that the encouragement you need for the hardships and struggles in your life is found in Scripture? Do you you believe that the Bible is sufficient to strengthen your heart amidst loss and pain? This is a verse that's very precious to me that I'd invite you to consider. Consider what the psalmist writes in Psalm 94.19. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Do you have cares that are many on your heart, Christian? Turn to the Lord in his word. In fact, friend, is, is this, do you find that to be true? I'm going to suggest that to those who have, who have been saved by God's grace, for those who view all of life as a gift of God's grace, they will seek their encouragement, not in the, the platitudes and simple cliches or the wisdom of man, but in God's good, authoritative, and sufficient word. Paul sent Tychicus to Ephesian, to the Ephesians so they'd be encouraged by Paul's letter, the very word of God. Let us be found as people who turn there as well. Then the second question I think this text forces us to ask is, not only where do you seek encouragement, but what is your source of peace? Look at verse 23. Here's the benediction. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith where from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is your source of peace? I recently read about a Christian apologist who asked his audience, he's a large audience, he was actually over in Asia, and he asked the audience to close their eyes and to imagine peace. He said, close your eyes and imagine peace. And after a few seconds, the audience was then invited to share their mental pictures of peace. Now, you you don't have to say it out loud, but how would, if you did that exercise, how would you imagine peace? You know what they said? One person described a field with flowers and beautiful trees. Another person spoke of snow-capped mountains, and an incredible alpine landscape. Still another described a scene of beautiful, a still lake. And after everyone described their mental picture of peace, the Christian apologist made an observation. He said they all had one thing in common. And you know what that was? The one thing they all had in common? There were no people in them. And the apologist then made this comment to his audience. He says, isn't it interesting? When asked to imagine peace, the first thing he do, he says, 
is to eliminate everyone else. Notice what Paul says in this verse. Notice peace doesn't come from the elimination of people in your life. No, it comes from, the source is, it comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we're reading the book of Ephesians carefully, this should not surprise us, right? For what did Paul teach us back in Ephesians chapter 2? I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. Paul writes this, speaking of Christ, for he himself is our what? Peace, who has made us both one. He's talking about Jew and Gentile, bringing them together. Made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace, and notice, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Yes, hostility against one another, but more importantly, the hostility we have towards God. Friend, through the person work of Christ, we have peace with God and we can have peace with one another. Because I don't know if you realize this or not, but outside of Christ, we're not at peace with God. We're at enmity with God. And you know what? He's at enmity with us. And rightfully so. We are children of wrath outside of Christ. But through the person work of Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ, we now have the only peace that matters with our God. And that's the peace that can sustain us through any difficulty this world might throw our way. All of this peace is important. It's what can sustain us and give us joy until we finally arrive at the celestial city. I have peace with my creator. I am now a beloved son or daughter of his. I love what John Calvin has, has said, commenting on how vital it is that we find our true source of peace in our relationship that we have with God. Calvin writes this, and I'm going to tell you, heads up, this stinks. He writes this. He says, if someone is sick or in need of the good things of this world or troubled by his enemies, we are accustomed to cry out for help and to succor. Am I saying that right? Succor? I've heard it both ways. Okay. And notice what he says. And we would have every man busy himself for us. And then he goes on and he says this. And why? Because since we are carnal, as soon as we feel any disease in our body, we are distressed at heart. But at the same time, we forget the main thing. That is to say, that which concerns the eternal salvation of our souls. We take this light momentary affliction and make much of this and minimize the peace we have with God through Jesus Christ. And God's word says, flip it. Magnify. Make much of. Delight in the fact that you who are an enemy of God are no longer... You have peace for all eternity with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So friend, don't look for peace in the betterment of your circumstances or the elimination of people. As, as tempting as that is. <laughs> look for peace in the Lord of your circumstances and the God of your salvation. And then lastly, I think this text invites us to ask, who is your supreme love? Notice what he says there in verse 23. Actually, I'll go back to, to verse 20. Yeah, 23. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What, what do you think is one of the defining marks of saving faith? That is, what should be evidence of God's saving work in the, life, in the believer's life? If we're to think about what are the true marks of a Christian, the thing that, that, that really gives evidence to the fact that they've been touched by God's grace what do you think it is? I'm going to suggest, based on this passage, it's love for Jesus. It's a love for Christ. That our greatest treasure is Him. As Paul writes elsewhere in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, here's the one thing that he counts, but only faith working through love. That is, love not simply for others, but as Paul makes clear here in Ephesians 6.24, most importantly, love for Jesus. Again, those who view all of life as a gift of God's grace will treasure Christ above everything else. He's their greatest good. He's their deepest Delight. Pastor and author Ian Hamilton captures the idea well. Commenting on this verse, he writes this. He says, Where the grace of God has been savingly planted in our lives, it will show itself in love to the Savior. A love of unceasing gratitude for blessing us with every spiritual blessing. But what if Christ isn't my supreme love? What if my heart often feels cold to Jesus? What should I do then? In other words, how can you make Jesus your greatest love? I'm going to suggest, as I've been doing this morning, it all starts with your outlook on life. If you view life through the grid of pride that, and you believe, I did it, I deserve it, you will never love Christ with an incorruptible love. Never. But if you embrace humility, but if you view life biblically, that you are owed nothing from God except wrath for your sin 
yet you have received every blessing in Christ Jesus. If you do that, that truth will begin to change your affections. Indeed, if you really want to grow in your love for Christ in a very pastoral, practical way, review and dwell on Ephesians 2. Who we once were, how God has made us alive together with him. Faith, you know what happens when you get a church full of people who love Jesus supremely? God's glory is displayed. God's glory is displayed as we interact with one another and as we live out our love for Jesus in obedience to him, which is exactly what Paul wants to happen in the local church, right? Let it be said of this church, amen? Let's pray.